0: Welcome to Many Happy Returns, where we aim to make you a better investor. I'm Roman, And I'm Michael. Government bonds are often considered the steady, perhaps even boring, investment class. But this year has seen the biggest bond crash in a generation. As if things weren't interesting enough, the European Central Bank is concocting a new wheeze to keep bond spreads in check. The Bank of Japan is printing
1: record-breaking amounts of money, and Russia has defaulted on its debt. I want to know how to make sense of all of this, and whether now might be the time to buy government bonds. And if so, which ones? And in today's dumb question of the week, we ask, why do government bonds have a fixed term? Why not issue perpetual bonds? Okay, let's get into it. Romin, you've always told us that government bonds are not boring. And once again, you've been proved right. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you see? Some mad stuff is going on. <laughs> I love them. And uh, finally,
0: they're kind of talks about. So, OK, maybe it's for the wrong reasons, but it is exciting now that finally bonds are in the headlines. Yeah. And people care.
1: Everywhere. So Russia's defaulting on its government bonds, sort of by default, defaulting by default. <laughs> It's interesting
0: because they've got the money because of the oil revenue and the gas revenue and they're willing to pay. So they can pay, they're willing to pay, but they can't pay because of the sanctions. So this is a really odd situation.
1: Yeah, it kind of reminds me of when I was parking my car and I went to leave and the ticket machine was broken. And so I just left anyway and then they hit me with a massive fine. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so he was sanctioned? Yeah, I hadn't even invaded any countries at that point. <laughs>
0: but, you know, I mean, it is worrying for Russia because if they do default, even if it is a technical default, it could push up their cost of funding in future. So really, this is America and the West freezing a country out of the system. If you don't play nicely with the rest of us, then we're
1: going to hit you with these terrible economic repercussions. So I think the situation is that there was roughly $100 million worth of interest on government bonds due, and that was due on Sunday, and that was the end of a 30-day grace period, and that's now expired. Apparently, Russia sent that money to the clearinghouse and then the clearinghouse just froze it. So it's kind of, yeah, like you say, the money's there but it's not reaching the bondholders. So are the bondholders not a bit like, could you eat these sanction. please where's our money
0: well i actually know some of the bondholders and they hold a sizable amount of this russian debt because until recently if you had a high income tilt to your portfolio then russian bonds actually offered a very good source of income and also for equity you know there were high dividend payers. a lot of these russian energy companies and banks you know that's why it's been so painful because people suddenly were hit with this freeze on their assets and many of their assets have been marked to zero. Oh really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So someone on Petrograph recently
1: said that they had I think it was a Russian ETF. And that thing essentially has been marked to zero. Well, I read that one of these bonds that's maturing in 2026 with the interest payments to due now, that's trading at 19 cents on the dollar. So it's been, yeah, marked to default levels effectively.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's distressed debt. That's that's effectively pricing in a default. So I think if you're a holder of one of those bonds, it's a really awful period because unlike equity, which eventually could recover if you hold on to it, because equity is a perpetual instrument, it never matures... With a bond effectively a clock's ticking and if this situation isn't resolved by maturity you may not get your principal back. So that's the real
1: risk. And it's interesting that we've talked about risk before, and Russian debt probably wasn't seen as that risky because it didn't have that much foreign debt in relation to the size of its economy. But the risk was this political risk.
0: Because they didn't need a lot of debt because they probably had a primary surplus. You know, the government was probably earning more in terms of revenue from energy products than it was having to spend. So I think from that point of view, they don't really care that much at the moment, certainly, while the revenue's coming in. Their surplus must be
1: huge now because they're still selling their oil and gas and bringing in foreign reserves at the same time as basically not being able to import anything. And that's driven the ruble to be much stronger now against the dollar, the best performing currency this year.
0: Yeah, it surged actually. You know, it had a massive dip. It's now surged since. So I think they probably do have a big primary surplus. And look, eventually this is going to be resolved. Countries exist forever and it won't always be the case that we have this kind of sanctions against Russia. I don't know how it's going to resolve itself. I hope it's peaceful.
1: Well, let's hope Ukraine exists forever.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's very difficult at the moment if you do buy fossil fuels that you know you are funding, effectively, countries like Russia, which aren't particularly uh, aligned with Western principles.
1: No, and it's difficult, I guess, if you're a bondholder because, as I understand it, the typical response to a sovereign default would be, one of two things. You can either press to accelerate the debt repayments, so, you know, kind of call in those loans, or you can go after the assets of the state that are held abroad. So I think people, when Venezuela defaulted, were chasing the assets of the state oil company, for example.
0: But these things can last for years. You know, they can just drag on in courts internationally. And a really important thing is what law is used for the bonds themselves. Some are issued, for example, under English law and some under a US law. So, for example, if you issue a hard currency bond, then even if it's issued by a country in emerging markets, it might be subject to U.S. law, for example. But you can bet that the people who own a lot of this debt, a lot of them are hedge funds, and they've got really good lawyers who'll really read the terms of the individual bonds and squeeze every last penny out of, or every last ruble out of the, um, out of the default
1: eventually. And charges two thousand dollars an hour. Oh yeah, I mean the lawyers must love this. <laughs> The thing is, right, what's the point in pushing for accelerated payments? They literally can't pay you. They have the money.
0: Yeah, I mean, from the point of view of the investors, you're always thinking, how can I maximise my recovery rate? What option is going to give me the best possible payment? So I assume that if they accelerate it, they think they're more likely to get some of their money back.
1: I saw Matt Levine in his newsletter, which is fantastic, and everyone should subscribe. He said, well, maybe there's a kind of weird technical way around it where Russia's paying the money to the clearinghouse and it gets frozen there, and then the investors sue to take it as seizure of their foreign assets. So it kind (laughs) of goes through this other route to make the bond payments. It's crazy. I mean, that can't stand up legally, but it kind of makes sense. No, but he
0: is a lawyer. I mean, I I love Matt Levine's stuff. But I, I think the worry at the moment is that this is going to spill over into emerging market debt more widely. Russia was a fairly small part of global sovereign debt markets. And that's even true if you look at just emerging market sovereign debt. But let's say that the concerns were raised about a bigger issuer. So let's take a quick look at one of these large emerging market bond ETFs. So EMB is a dollar-denominated EM bond ETF. So this is a country like Mexico issuing a bond which is denominated in dollars. It's called a hard currency bond. So if you look at the actual geographic breakdown of the countries in that fund, then Mexico comes out on top, so that's about 5.7%, Indonesia second, 5.3%, Saudis 5%, UAE 5%, Qatar 5%, Turkey 4.5%, China 4 So, you know, it's fairly diversified. Even the biggest holding is about 5.7%. So
1: if worries start to spill over into other countries, then we could see a really big sell-off here. But in terms of worries spreading, that contagion risk, it's not a direct risk from Russia, is it? It's just people getting scared of the asset class around emerging markets.
0: But contagion isn't a rational thing always. So, for example, in the Asian currency crisis, countries which were effectively sound from a fiscal point of view were ones which also had their currency sell off very rapidly. That's the way fear spreads. People say, "Okay, which is the next shoe to drop? Then the prices start to fall on those assets and people pull their money out and you get this spiral of fear. At least for the moment, though, that's not happening.
1: And is emerging market debt starting to sell off now? Yeah, so we are starting to see that
0: fund sell off. So that's down by about 26% since the beginning of 2021. So it's been gradually falling and then rapidly falling from the beginning of this year. But all risky assets have sold off to some extent. So it's part of that fear mentality which makes people withdraw from risky things like emerging market debt, but also things like high-yield credit.
1: I think the thing I've sometimes wondered is, from the point of view of the country issuing the bonds, so let's say Russia in this instance... What difference does it make to them if they default? You said, okay, it can cause higher borrowing costs as bond buyers demand higher yields to compensate for the risk. But the country's not going to go bankrupt.
0: Yeah, I mean, the country is not going to cease to exist or have to liquidate itself or sell bits of itself off. But really, the problem is that if they do want to fund a fiscal deficit, in other words, if they do want to plug the difference between income and expenditure, it'll be much more costly to do that in future. Because people don't forget these things quickly. If you've defaulted recently, then you will pay the price.
1: Russia did default in 1998, I think. Yeah,
0: and that's why it offers high yield on its bonds since, because people kind of knew that it was, you know, a bit... (laughs)
1: Liable to do something a bit mad.
0: Yeah, because countries are like people. If they do something bad, they might say they're not going to do it again, but they don't change that quickly.
1: And looking around the world, Russia is maybe the main example of crazy stuff going on. But if you cast your eye to Japan, the government bond market and the way their central bank is acting is also pretty strange right now. Oh, Japan is so interesting. I think in
0: terms of debt to GDP, clearly they're way out there. You know, they're not just betting the farm on the future. They've also bet the entire, well, the entire country. And I think future generations may look back on this time and just say, oh my goodness, what did they do? So if you look at debt to GDP ratios, the reason why this matters, let me just quickly say, is imagine you've got some amount of debt. If you've got a huge salary, a huge income, then you can sustain a large amount of debt. If you've got a small income, then you can't maintain a lot of debt. So that's why this kind of country income, which is what GDP is effectively, is used as a kind of benchmark to see how much debt you can sustain. So debt to GDP
1: measures that sustainability, if you like. Is it fair to compare government debt to like household finances, though? Because the government can print money. Yeah, so that's the difference.
0: And this is the point that many people make, which is that effectively you can print money to kind of plug
1: the difference between spending and expenditure. And boy, has the Bank of Japan been printing money.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so this is the central bank, which has you know, gone beyond... Every other central bank in terms of what it does. So not only did it buy Japanese government bonds, JGBs, as part of its QQE program, that's quantitative and qualitative easing. (laughs) Right. Okay. (laughs) I got there in the end. It's also been buying equity. So at one point, I think it was the biggest holder of Japanese equity ETFs. So it was basically just dominating that market. And somehow it's got to unwind that position, which it still holds, I believe. The thing
1: I find interesting is it's doing something called yield curve control, where it's decided that the Japanese 10-year government bond should be pegged to a rate of 0.25%. And so if it starts to drift above, it prints money and buys the government bonds to pull it back to that peg. And what's happened lately is it's just had to print an enormous amount of money to maintain that peg. And people are questioning, is it going to stick with this policy?
0: The thing is, the way yields work globally is, let's imagine there's a country which has a fairly high yield. So let's say it's the United States. Then if other countries have lower yield, then the typical buyers of government debt, usually insurance companies, pension funds, who are forced to buy that kind of safe thing, will buy the foreign government bond debt, but they'll currency hedge it. So whenever the yields go up in one country, then usually the yields will follow in other countries because people will buy the debt of the other country, their local government bonds will become less attractive, the prices will go down and the yields go up. So that's why usually there's a kind of stabilisation mechanism that keeps developed market debt yields kind of in line with each other. And if you plot their histories, they are kind of correlated, pretty strongly correlated, in fact. So the point is that if yields are going up elsewhere, then that'll push up... Japanese government bond yields as well.
1: But they're not allowing them to be pushed up.
0: Exactly. So they're having to buy more and more of their own government debt. And if you look at their monthly purchases, the graph is literally going vertical at the moment.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I looked at this graph of their weekly government bond purchases in trillions of yen, which is, you know, always a good start. (laughs) It looks like, the graph looks like if you saw the Empire State Building being (laughs) built in the 1930s, and it just towers over the rest of New York building in the world everything else is like an ant compared to it and this graph is like that so for the past decade it's been buying somewhere between one and two trillion yens worth of government bonds a week and in the last week it's spiked to nearly 11 trillion in a week
0: yeah i mean it's just gone completely ballistic but the japanese central bank says that it's going to carry on doing that the boj's very adamant that that's going to continue But, of course, people want to bet against it. So remember the way this works. If you've got a cap on yield of 0.25%, that's an upper yield cap. So that's a lower price on the bonds. So effectively, they're preserving the price of the bonds by buying them, keeping them above some
1: minimum value. Yeah, they're artificially boosting demand for the bonds.
0: Yeah. And if that breaks, then the prices will fall, the yields will rise. So people are going
1: short JGBs. But this is a really risky trade. I saw it referred to as the widow-maker trade, <laughs> which is, I think, the best example I've heard of trying to make government bonds sound exciting.
0: Yeah, I think it is exciting. I find it fascinating that people will put their careers on the line with really big trades
1: like this. But people have been betting against Japanese government bonds for years and years now, and the Bank of Japan has stuck firm. So what could cause it to change course?
0: I think if at a certain point it's having to spend so much to defend the cap on yield, and if yield curve control is just you know the cost of maintaining it, it's just spiraling out of control, then which it kind of is, then it may have to reevaluate what it's doing.
1: But is that because the release valve here is the value of the yen, which has cratered versus the dollar?
0: Oh yeah, I mean the the yen's down by a staggering amount year to date. It's down by sixteen percent so far versus the dollar.
1: Yeah, it's a twenty four year low versus the dollar. <laughs>
0: The funny thing about this is that they've actually finally managed to get inflation above 2%. So now 2.5% is what Japan's got. But from the point of view of Japanese citizens, this isn't great because they've got pass-through inflation where if their currency is weaker than any imports which they have, they have to pay more for. And they're very heavily dependent on energy imports because they don't have their own source of energy. And they shut down all of their nuclear plants after Fukushima nuclear disaster so I think you know they are in a pretty perilous stage
1: at the moment. Whether the Bank of Japan can carry on doing this, I don't know. I mean, there was one fact I saw that really put the scale of the Japanese QE that's going on at the moment in context. And that was if you adjust for the size of the economies, the weekly Bank of Japan money printing now is more than 20 times that of the Feds in 2021 (laughs) when everyone was going, oh my God, the Fed's gone crazy. (laughs) And this is 20 times that. But the debt to
0: GDP for Japan, it's over 200% and it has been for some time. In terms of debt to GDP, it's way out there. And, you know, the only country which is near it is Greece. So Japan has 237% debt to GDP. It's more than two times the GDP of the country. Greece is 177%. And then we get down to Italy, 135 And people are worried about the US, but that's only at 107%. So I think you have to place these things in context and think about how sustainable the debt is. Now, lots of people say that, oh, the world's ending, the debt to GDP is going to get out of control. What really matters, the way you solve high debt to GDP, is to grow your way out of it. In other words, the economy grows, more quickly than the debt.
1: The trouble is, though, the Japanese economy has basically not been growing for decades or very, very slowly.
0: Yeah. So the immigration in Japan is literally zero. You know, they've got no people kind of entering the country. The birth rate's fairly moribund. So, you know, shrinking population, productivity not really increasing. So the amount of income which is generated per person for the country hasn't really increased much. So, you know, that is a pretty worrying situation. So growing their way out of this is going to be an issue. Whereas the US, I think, could quite easily, is quite easily achieving that right now.
1: And you mentioned those other countries with high debt to GDP, so Greece, Italy, places like that. I think what we've also seen is the ECB starting to panic a bit. This is the European Central Bank. So they had an emergency meeting where their governing council pledged to, and I quote, accelerate plans to create a new anti-fragmentation instrument. Any idea what that means? More money printing? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) So they always have these nice acronyms
0: like CSPP and PEP, P-E-P-P. So P-E-P-P stands for Pandemic Emergency Purchase Programme. And the idea is that they were going to use non-standard monetary policy measures, which meant effectively they just buy the debt of individual countries within the European Union. And there was a certain cap they set on how much they could buy. But the idea is that you keep government funding costs low so that these countries can effectively bail out their own economy. And the idea is now what they can do is they can selectively take some of the redeeming bonds which they've bought and reinvest the principle, the redeeming principle of the bonds, into specific countries
1: which need it. So let's say Italy's spread is just blowing out of control. So what you mean there is they're having to pay a much higher interest rate than Germany. Which effectively was happening until recently. Yeah, I mean the spreads went to eight-year highs.
0: So Italian yields spiked way above 4%, you know, way above what Germany was paying, which was, you know, far less than 2%. And that spread, which is, you know, Germany's considered the risk-free government debt in Europe, and all the spreads are measured relative to that. And Italian spreads just blew out a lot. So what they could have done, and what they probably will do, is to take the redeeming principle and buy specifically Italian debt with it.
1: I mean, you say that's what they could do, but a lot of people say... With some justification, that is against the EU treaties. You're not allowed to monetize fiscal deficits, but they're kind of just doing it anyway.
0: The key word here is conditionality. So the idea is that if you give money to a country, a specific country within the EU, then usually it comes with strings attached, which is you won't go crazy with the spending.
1: Right. That's worked really well. Yeah.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And countries like Germany are really keen on enforcing that, of course, because they've got the biggest holding in terms of the ECB. So usually the way QE works from the ECB is it's based on capital key. So every country has a stake in the ECB, and for example, Germany's capital key is about 18%, Greece is 1.7%, and it really depends on how much capital they've got invested in the ECB, but also their GDP as a share of the EU. It's a combination of those two weightings. So, you know, Germany's on the hook for a lot of these liabilities. So it's quite keen to keep this kind of fiscal control to stop people spending like crazy.
1: I mean, you say quite keen. It almost blew apart the EU's legal order by its constitutional court challenging the legal supremacy of the EU.
0: Yeah, I remember at the time because, you know, I was a strategist and the big thing was the sovereign debt crisis in Europe. So we just heard about it ad nauseam at the time. But you've got this huge wedge being driven between countries within the
1: EU and there is this fragmentation risk. For the eu and the euro is the main problem here that the euro itself is this kind of frankenstein beast where you've got one currency for all these countries which don't have a unified fiscal policy they don't have significant fiscal transfers and the same interest rate just doesn't work for germany as it does for italy and greece
0: yeah i think that's a fundamental problem and somehow they've got to address this fragmentation risk i think the way it'll ultimately be resolved if it is resolved. Let's hope it isn't the fragmentation of the euro. But I think ultimately what will happen is they will have common debt. They started, didn't they, in the
1: pandemic? They issued some common debt.
0: That's right. And I think if there was a kind of central treasury for Europe, then that probably would be the solution. And there are moves to try and
1: do that. It's just taking a long time to achieve. I mean, the risk in the meantime is popular discord, isn't it? Like, is the German taxpayer going to want to be on the hook or Italian and Greek debt when it has no say about how it's being spent, really, not directly.
0: Yeah, uh, and they're not going to be happy about that, although they've done so well out of the euro, because if you think about what their currency would be worth if they didn't have the euro, then it would be much stronger. So having a weak currency has actually hugely benefited Germany
1: from their export point of view. They found a brilliant way to take over the continent. <laughs> <laughs> Eventually. <laughs>
0: Can't say that. (laughs) But look, I think this debt sustainability thing is important because even for developed markets, okay, for EM markets, you'd expect a default risk. The developed markets, if there was a kind of default, you know, if the US hit the debt ceiling, they didn't manage to sort it out in time, you know, you could get a default. That would be hugely disruptive for bond markets and they wouldn't be boring then. No, But I think that's highly unlikely for, for a country like the US or even Japan. So if you look at the outlays in terms of debt servicing for the US, if you look at the fiscal year for 2022, and this is based on the latest Treasury report for May 2022, the net interest payment was 8% of their outlays. So what do they pay for? They pay for social security, that's 800 billion. Income security, 649 billion. Health, 611 billion. National defense, about 495 billion. Medicare, 459 billion. So net interest is way down the list at 311 billion. So that's why I think even if interest rates were to double, the US could weather it. And their debt servicing costs, I think, would still be reasonably low as a percentage of their total outlays.
1: But I don't think every country is in that position. You double the Italian bond repayments and they'd be in big trouble.
0: Yeah, I think other countries have got less capacity for an increase in yield, particularly the kind of peripheral countries in Europe They're in that situation. So if you look at the Italian 10-year yield, at the moment it's 3.6%
1: versus Germany's, which is 1.5%. And doesn't this just lead through into what on the face of it looks like crazy monetary policy? So inflation is over 8% in the eurozone, and the ECB has negative interest rates and is still buying bonds. That seems mad, right?
0: Well, remember that it doesn't have a dual mandate. The US has a dual mandate, the Fed. It has to have... Maximum employment, whatever that is, and combined with that, it's got to keep inflation at around 2%.
1: And it kind of has a third implicit mandate, which is to not let the financial system collapse by, like, (laughs) Treasury seizing up.
0: Well, all central banks have that mandate, and they also have to govern the financial system. So they have to ensure that the rules are in place to stop dodgy business going on, or at least not too much of it.
1: Okay, so the Fed has that dual mandate, but Europe doesn't. Is that right?
0: Yeah. Explicitly, it's not part of their mandate to have full employment. But of course they care about it because financial stability is their mandate. So you can't have a stable euro unless you've got a stable financial system. So you could say, well, if there's a huge recession, then that's going to hurt financial stability.
1: But if their one and only mandate, as you're saying, is price stability, interest rates have got to go up, but
0: they're not doing it. Well, if they did put up interest rates and they crashed the economy then that wouldn't be great for the euro either. That would weaken the euro. So I think it kind of sweeps everything up into one Uber mandate, okay? So that's just the
1: way it works. (laughs) Their mandate, let's be honest, their mandate is to use sticky tape to try and keep the euro together. That's their mandate. Which they've done a very good job of so far. But I think
0: governments have to play ball on the fiscal side and just not go crazy with the spending. So the two have to kind of work hand in hand. And if you used to listen to Draghi, that was what he was always talking about. He was talking about fiscal responsibility hand in hand with monetary
1: policy, because that works best. I mean, I think fiscal responsibility was meant to be enshrined in the treaties. I think it had a cap of something like 60% debt to GDP. Countries weren't meant to exceed. And they've just sort of ignored that.
0: But there are various reasons why they had to. I think it was kind of silly to have a hard limit.
1: Yeah, I agree. But it was in the treaties and they were signed. There
0: was, it was. And they have basically flouted it. But with the pandemic, you know, I think that was a justification
1: for spending more. And I think it was right to do that. This all kind of comes back to the problem every central bank is really facing now. And Lynn Alden, in her latest newsletter, which I thought was great and provocative in all the right ways, she described it as central banks being in checkmate which is, in her words, when a central bank encounters inflation that is above its target, but it still can't stop printing money due to either a lack of buyers for its country's debt or liquidity problems or any of these other means, which basically means it can't fulfil its mandate. Yeah,
0: I think many of them are in a very difficult situation because a lot of the inflation that we see now is not directly affected by monetary policy. You can't affect supply chains by increasing interest rates. You can't affect the price of oil by increasing interest rates. So these exogenous shocks have put these central banks into a really difficult situation. And whether you call it checkmate or not, I don't know. But I think effectively what they've got to do is be seen to be doing something, anchor inflation expectations and remain credible and just wait for this shock to pass for demand exceeding supply for a lot of these supply chains. And I think that will happen. You know, if you look at China right now, they're easing their lockdowns and we will see those supply chains slowly recover. It's not going to be quick, but I think it will happen. And if we do get a recession, of course, then that usually pushes down commodity prices, including oil. And it's disinflationary. It pushes down the rate of inflation. So I think eventually these stabilisation mechanisms will kick in. It just takes a while. It's very difficult, you know, for many people getting through this awful situation now that we find ourselves
1: in. And if it does play out like you've just described, presumably the prices of government bonds will rally as yields will fall again.
0: That's right. So yields will fall because prices are rising for government bonds. And that would be quite an opportunity, wouldn't it?
1: So, what do you think? Is now the time to buy government bonds? (laughs) Oh, I've just done a video about that, Michael. In fact, yeah. When's your video, Roman? Plug it properly. Saturday, so this Saturday. Put it in your
0: calendars, everyone. (laughs) But, But look, I think at the moment, in my fund portfolio, the thing which is done really well is the commodity fund. So I've just sold that because I think this whole kind of recession thing is never a good look for commodities. So that trade really worked very well. But what I'll probably switch into now is government debt. Oh,
1: Roman's regime
0: change is (laughs) upon (laughs) us. Now, look, I always get these wrong. So don't listen to me. This is not advice. But personally, this is what I'm doing in the fund portfolio. And I only do it with small amounts of capital.
1: It just makes me feel good if I get it right. So when you say you're buying government bonds... What kind of duration and what kind of countries are you looking at?
0: Well, I'll probably go for US Treasuries, and I'll go for long duration. And I might currency hedge it, I might not. I just don't think sterling's going to rally a lot, so I may not currency hedge it. Because, you know, if there is growth which disappoints from now onwards, and another video I did recently looked at this latest model from the Fed, which, contrary to their guidance, shows that a recession's actually 50% probability, given where we are now, with some macro variables then if we do get a recession, yields are linked to growth expectations. So we'd expect yields to fall. Long-term yields. Yeah, long-term yields this is. Those would fall and prices of the bonds would rise. Oh, we're making a lot of money with it. It's just recession usually means government bonds rally.
1: Yeah. So you're basically looking at it on the balance of probabilities and saying there's good upside to government bond prices now versus relatively limited downside because they've already fallen so far.
0: So the risk reward is better. The yields are higher. So that's a positive immediately. But I think that a recession would be disinflationary. It would probably push down energy prices and reduce demand you know, if growth is lower, that usually is good for government bonds. So all of these factors kind of are in confluence. The risk to that view is that actually growth won't be so bad. You know, everyone's talking about recession, but it might not happen. It might be that inflation stays high for a very long period of time. So I talk about those risk cases as well. But still, I think it's a kind of
1: a fun thing to do at the moment. What about buying some Russian debt for 19 cents on the dollar? (laughs) (laughs) If I could, I probably wouldn't. That's a fun portfolio
0: move. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, I do know people who've got that exposure and they're not particularly happy with it. But, you know, I probably wouldn't take that kind of risk. That's a much more binary risk. And it might get tied up in legal courts with the recovery now that a default has happened. So I just wouldn't touch that have a whole video dedicated to the topic of whether now's a good time to buy government bonds. That's coming out soon after this podcast is released. And if you want to learn more about investing in bonds or any other asset class, why not think about joining our membership? You can learn more about that at pensioncraft.com. Okay,
1: today's dumb question of the week is why do government bonds have a fixed term? You know, it could be a two-year bond, a five-year bond, a 30-year bond. Why don't they issue perpetual bonds that just last forever and pay a coupon? Because on the face of it, there's some advantages to that. You wouldn't have to go through this whole crazy process of rolling over the bonds and issuing new bonds and all that kind of stuff. So why don't they do it?
0: They kind of have a system where you can tap an existing issue. So let's say you've issued a bond with a particular maturity and a coupon date you can actually issue more of that, and it's called a tap rather than a new issue. So that is one way of kind of effectively rolling over an existing issue. But the other point, I guess, is if interest rates are at kind of generational lows, which they have been recently, then why not issue perpetual debt? And some countries have done this. For example, I think the example you found was this Austrian 100-year bond, the century bond. So not quite perpetual.
1: I mean, it's not perpetual, yeah, but it's close as you get these days. A 100-year bond. And, I mean, it's no surprise that it's actually cratered this year. <laughs> <I> mean, <laughs> it's down 66% since its highs.
0: Yeah, so currently it's trading at between about 80 and 82 euros on the 100-euro bond. Issue amount on the paramount. So trading at a pretty big discount, but of course it is because interest rates have risen and the price has fallen. But the way to look at these things is as an income stream. I always think this is the way you should look at bonds. It's essentially two instruments in one. One is a really safe, steady income stream which dials up and down as the government bond yields rise and fall and new issues are incorporated in the fund. And at the same time, you've got this kind of really risky part of the bond, which is its mark to market value. If yield curves move up today, the price will move down and vice versa. And that's very volatile. So safe, steady income stream combined with kind of a crazy market-driven mark-to-market value. Now, if you hold it for a very long period of time, decades, all you really see is the income stream, which gradually rises and falls. So if you're a long-term government bond investor, that's the way to think of the instrument. You can effectively ignore the volatile bit and just focus on the income stream. And of course, if equity markets really, really crash, rapidly and unpleasantly, and in a disorderly fashion, you can bet that government bonds will rally. And here I'm talking about developed markets. So that's the way to think about these bonds. But back to the perpetuals, I remember when I had a Bloomberg terminal, one of the fun things is to just look up weird bonds. And there are some really weird bonds out there. And these were one some of the weirdest, which is the UK Perpetual Bonds. Is this consoles? Consoles, as they used to be called. British consoles. But now they've been redeemed. So I think they were redeemed. What year was that?
1: 2015. So I've looked up these because I found them interesting too. So they were first issued in 1751 which, you know, a lot of countries didn't even exist back then. And they were issued at 3.5% as an interest rate and had basically been in circulation ever since, paying that coupon until 2015, when we uh, recalled all the bonds.
0: But what's interesting about these instruments is that you might think that duration, which is the sensitivity of a bond to interest rate, increases and decreases would be really, really big for these consoles. But due to the beauty of bond maths, it actually bottoms out at a certain level. So for example, this Austrian century bond has a duration of 37 years. So even though it's got a century worth of coupons, once you do all the discounting of the cash flows and everything and the bond maths, it turns out the duration's about 37. So very sensitive to interest rates.
1: I'm never going to understand that. Oh, it's brilliant. But what I do know is that my wife is Austrian and I always say, how's your government bond doing? How's your 100-year bond? (laughs) (laughs) So that's
0: dinner party conversation, is it?
1: Yeah, it's like 80 cents on the dollar or on the euro. Very good.
0: But look, if you are a government and you want to lock in a low rate for a very long period of time or forever, then yeah, issue perpetual debts. It's kind of interesting that the US didn't do that. And a lot of their debt is short-term debt, much more so than, say, the UK, which typically issues long-duration debt. And that makes a lot of sense when interest rates are low. So I don't know why the US Treasury has chosen to do that. But at the moment, one of the reasons why there's a shortage of short-term US Treasuries, these are called bills, is because it's been issuing less, because of the fact it's tilting to issuing more long-duration debt. But it decided not to issue perpetuals. I don't know why.
1: Well, maybe there was some kind of legal issue because, you know, half of the country does not like the idea of government debt.
0: But look, you know, the argument's a good one, which is that, you know, generational lows in funding costs, we could lock
1: this in for future generations. I think that would be quite a compelling argument. They should hire me. Well, I looked it up and Walt Disney has issued 100-year bonds, Coca-Cola and Oxford University. So a lot of people are on this idea. Yeah, if you've got a high credit rating today, then,
0: you know, it kind of makes sense to lock in those rates. So, you know, if the US Treasury wants to
1: hire me to sell their uh, perpetual bond, I'm happy to do that. Presumably inflation is a massive risk, though, if you're holding such a long duration bond.
0: Yeah, from the point of view of the investor, that's a worry. (laughs) Yeah, you say that again, right?
1: (laughs) Imagine if inflation was 10% for the next 50 years. Your bond's worthless. But look, the reason why you
0: buy government debt is because of that income stream. And if the income stream obviously is less than inflation, not so great. But that would be reflected in the price of the bond when you buy it. What you've got to worry about is if inflation spikes after you buy the bond. So that could be a massive problem.
1: Well, that's what happened to that Austrian bond.
0: Yeah, it is exactly. That's what's happened. Good for the Austrian government. But look at it now. You know, it's trading at a discount, a pretty big discount, pricing in very high inflation. So if inflation does come down, then that could be quite a good buying opportunity.
1: Roman, please, can you buy this Austrian bond for your fund portfolio? (laughs) I don't think I can buy it. Do it for me! Do it for me! I can't buy it. Do it it. for my wife. My broker doesn't have it. So, uh, you know, I couldn't buy it if I wanted to thank you for joining us for Many Happy Returns. Keep sending us your questions at mhr at pensioncraft.com and we'll tackle them in the coming episodes.
0: And do remember to check out pensioncraft.com for all the information about our membership, courses and
1: investment coaching options. Many Happy Returns is a Pension Craft production, co-hosted and executive produced by Rami Nakiza and Michael Pugh. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes and is not financial advice. We do not provide recommendations or endorse any decision to buy, sell or hold any security. We cannot be held responsible for any actions listeners may take and investors are encouraged to seek independent financial advice.